Hey everybody, welcome to the Full Frame uh, Podcast. Could you just oh. uh, just uh, take, stop and take it from the top one more time. Okay, okay, you ready? Gnome, welcome to the show. Thanks again for having me. I uh, I'm very very excited to have you on because um, there's been one there's been a lot of buildup. Um, you guys who are listening don't know, but Noam and I have tried this twice, <laughs> um, and I think. But what was good about it was the closer and closer we got, I think the more and more we started chatting about what we were going to chat about on this podcast. Exactly. So I am uh, I am psyched uh, to get talking now and for everyone to hear. No. Before we're going to get into your upcoming feature and we're going to get into some stuff relating to uh, the release of that feature, um, but can you just give us an overview of like where you come from, how you got into filmmaking? For sure. So again, thanks for for having me on. This is uh, always fun to do this kind of thing. And I guess a little background just to contextualize it. It's a similar story to so many filmmakers always grew up loving film, watching movies, you know, shooting stuff on the parents handy cam. I feel like everybody, at least yeah. on my own podcast, has that exact same yes. kind of yes. origin. Um, I think where I veered off a little bit was in high school, I got into acting because I thought that would be a way to get on set and kind of learn mm. Craft a little bit. So that was definitely something that was kind of part of my path earlier on. And um, through acting, I had met a couple of directors, one in particular on a commercial who advised me maybe not to go to film school. And for me, I thought that was good advice. Um, and uh, I, I guess I felt that and where he was coming from was that uh, you might want to study something else or learn some other topic or be interested in something that you could eventually bring to your filmmaking to kind of separate you from from others. So, you know, I don't know if that's the perfect advice for everyone, but for me, it made sense. So I pursued psychology uh, in university while I was still making short films and then freelancing, shooting local commercials and all the rest of it. Um, eventually, I did it, you know, a couple stints at production companies and post houses when I was younger, in my early 20s, before I really found my footing, I was still freelancing on the side. And at a certain point, it just became clear that I had to figure out how to kind of make it uh, my own thing and not really work for someone else. I, I never was a great employee. I don't think right. I work a lot harder on my own projects. It's just kind of how I'm wired. So I, I figured out over time, and I'm still figuring it out really, but how to configure uh, my working life to you know spend as much time as I can doing the things that I want to be doing, which is being creative and directing stuff and writing projects or editing, um, and uh, and less of it doing you know some of the tasks that I'm not as excited uh, to do or you know that might not really uh, help the the bigger goals that I have for the future. So right. um, you know over time, what that's turned into is basically. Uh, I do have a production company that's on the commercial side, um, and we do a lot of work for some great clients on that front. Um, but that's kind of separate from my filmmaking, um, where I'll write mm. direct indie features, um, going to release the second one soon, Psychosynthesis, which we'll talk about. Um, and then I have my blog and podcast, um, which really is kind of a bridge between everything that I do. It's just this creative outlet where I can write articles or you know talk to other filmmakers and people like yourself, hopefully, you know, you'll you'll be on the podcast soon i know we're yeah. talking about that um and uh and yeah i mean it's sort of just this 
piecemeal career where I've taken all these different components and things I'm interested in and tried to find a way to kind of fit them all together. So that's, uh, that's sort of, I guess where I'm at right now, but ask me again in six months and it'll, it'll be a little bit different. I'm sure. Yeah. And you're from Toronto, correct? Yeah. Originally I'm from Toronto. I grew up there and then, uh, moved here to LA almost exactly seven years ago. So yeah, it's awesome. And what has been your experience living and working in LA as a filmmaker? For me, it's honestly been great. And I think I mentioned this to you before uh, offline. Um, but yeah, for me, I, I always wanted to move here. There was something that kind of drew me uh, to LA. I think it was the weather. And yeah, the film industry is here, obviously. But even if it wasn't, I think I still, I don't know, there's something about the California lifestyle and the beach and, you know, just a lot of the things that I grew up sort of being fascinated by or interested in the mu movies I like, the music I was listening to, a lot of it came from here. So, you know, over time, uh, it just became clear that I kind of wanted to be here. And luckily, for me, it was, uh, you know, it really exceeded what I expected. Um, really, from day one, I was just so fortunate to meet such great people, some amazing collaborators um, that I still work with to this day, seven years later, just by, you know, coincidence or by fluke. And I don't think by any means anyone has to move to LA. I think you can build a great filmmaking career no matter where you are, small town, different country, really yeah. doesn't matter. Um, but there are definitely different opportunities. Um, and there's sort of these serendipitous moments that can happen here every so often where you're just kind of, you know, at the right place at the right time and you meet someone interesting and then that leads to, uh, you know, a project getting developed or something. So for me, it's it's really, really been uh, a great thing. But I know a lot of people have, have a, a love-hate relationship with, with the city. So I'm sure everybody would give you a very different answer. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's been interesting hearing, like, there's no average. Everyone's yeah. experience is different, and yet going through the same hoops. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, I'm always fascinated to hear people's take on the city. Um, so let's jump into your latest feature, Psychosynthesis. Mm -hmm. And... Um, we can you give us an overview real quickly a synopsis of what the film is about totally so the film is a it's really an art house film but it kind of leans into thriller territory as far as the genre um it's really stylized it's really moody and it follows this young mother named alice who gets a heart transplant and then begins to experience what's called uh cellular memory the effects of cellular mm -hmm. memory which is um having this um she has this belief that she's starting to take on a lot of the personality uh characteristics and the traits of her donor who's this woman who had a really troubled past who died and whose heart she's now carrying so that leads her to essentially go on this really um intense journey to kind of find herself and figure out who she's becoming and eventually leads to a relationship uh with the man who was married to the woman whose heart she's she's now you know has in her chest so uh it's really um you know it's based on a lot of uh, real accounts of people who have actually gone through this. And obviously, there was a lot of um, uh, creative liberty taken, I guess, in, in terms of how the story was constructed. But I really did try to root it in the reality of what people experience, because it's pretty crazy when you start getting into that whole topic uh, and learning about cellular memory and all this stuff, which I had no knowledge of before, but I just right. kind of went down this rabbit hole. And um, yeah, and then the the result of it, I guess, was this feature. 
Wow. So um, we kind of talked in our pre-interview about you were re doing a lot of reading up on it. How did you stumble onto that? Yeah, great question. So I try to build into my schedule, and I don't do it as nearly as much as I should, but every so often I try to go on sort of just like an, a binge of like input where I'm just reading a lot, I'm consuming a lot. I just find it really helps get the the wheel spinning creatively. Yeah. So um, I'd been reading, I read a lot of these like local news stories and these like bizarre things that you'll, they'll never make like national news because, you know, there's maybe not enough uh, like references or whatever behind them, but they'll sometimes right. make these little papers and you'll find these really weird stories in there. And I read one uh, that was about this woman whose husband um, died. He committed suicide. His heart was transplanted into this other man. And by total coincidence, these two people ended up meeting each other, getting together. They got married. And then that man committed suicide as well. And I read oh that story. God. I was like, that's insane. Like, I would do that just as a movie. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, I, I, I wanted to also be respectful and not try to lift anybody's true account. So, you know, I took ideas from that, but I also took ideas from, you know, a hundred other accounts and, and sort of synthesized them in, into this one uh, story. Yeah, that sounds awesome. And, yeah. and how long ago, um, how long ago did you start kind of pulling together ideas and kind of start outlining that idea till how long did it take you from kind of those first initial ideas to actual production? Well, that part actually went really quickly. So the first idea, well, I'll say this, the, the first idea to kind of deal with this subject matter happened maybe like a year before I actually wrote the script. Okay. Um, so there was a year of like on and off and, and really on and off in the sense that I might not think about it for a month and then, you know, spend a couple of days on it or whatever, but on and off for a year, basically thinking about this idea and what's the angle. Um, but then once I decided to actually do it, uh, from writing the script to like first draft to actually production, it was probably only, um, maybe four or five months. And that included wow. two months of like a, a kick, uh, seed and spark crowdfunding campaign. Um, so it happened really, really fast, but the post-production has actually been pretty slow. Um, we've, uh, we finished shooting it basically a year ago and I'm only now getting to like the tail end of post, which I guess is kind of normal, but it felt slow considering how quickly those first few steps went. Yeah. What was your experience? So I've actually, um, in the previous iteration of the podcast, we had, um, I believe Emily who runs, uh, seed and spark. We've oh, had yeah, her yeah, on yeah. there. And, uh, what was your, I, but I haven't really talked to a filmmaker who's used seed and spark for a feature. Um, how was your experience with seed and spark? So my experience with them was great. I think that uh, what they're doing as a platform is um, is really unique because nobody else is really tackling crowdfunding specifically from the filmmaker's perspective. Um, and they're really big on uh, diversity and making sure that um, the filmmakers who are uh, representing their platform are bringing really great stories that are kind of in line with their mission. And, you know, it, it just it feels like it's not run like a giant corporation because it's not. And right. I think that's that really helps. And, you know, down to just prepping you for running a campaign, they'll, you know, they have education on the site and all this other stuff, but they also will take a look at your campaign and they'll give you feedback and they'll say, uh, you need more B-roll in your video or you need more this or that. And, and, you know, at the end of the day, they 
they just want what's best for you because if uh, you do well, they do well. Right. And, uh, you know, and when you listen to that feedback, it's really helpful. More generally, though, over the years, um, I, I have sort of uh, fallen a bit out of love with crowdfunding in general. I think it's yeah. it, it's a great option for a lot of films and for a lot of filmmakers. And obviously, I utilized it in this case. But I don't think it's kind of the magic bullet solution that people thought that it would be maybe when... Right let's say seven, eight years ago when it was first really hitting its stride. Um, so I think if you're going to crowdfund, um, they're an amazing platform to use for sure. Uh, but I've, I've been making a case to some filmmakers lately that might not be worth crowdfunding. It really depends right. on how much you're trying to raise and what your timeline's like, because sometimes it's easier to actually raise that money uh, in, in so many other ways. Yeah, yeah, that was, I, I kind of, I've done a couple of, crowdfundings for shorts and what a feature that HMD did, you know, many years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, and I was just, part of it is, is I was just exhausted by the end of the campaign, you know? Um, and it's so hard. Um, particularly we did a short, um, that it was hard to show people what you wanted to do because that was what, you needed the money for exactly you know and how much for a project like that how much were would you have been trying to raise do you remember roughly? i mean we were raising six to fifteen thousand mm-hmm. dollars i mean it wasn't a, a it, it was not 20 even twenty thousand yeah. dollars but it was very like we were uh, specifically with the short we were trying to do this um, you know visually awesome uh very cool genre short that we got it you know done but it was um, to, you know, we had a location that was very far away. So to go and even get material to show people was mm-hmm. an investment. Exactly. You know? It's investment of time, investment of money. Um, you know, and, and the thing is when you think of the, the amount, and I don't mean to deter anyone from crowdfunding, cause like I said, in some cases it's by far the best option. Yeah. Um, uh, but if you consider, let's say, you know, the average person is trying to raise, you know, 6,000 bucks or 10,000 bucks or trying to make a short film just to make it easy number, let's say 6,000, I'd say on average, most crowdfunding campaigns will actually take you six months of time between, you know, the prep, which might be a couple of months, the campaign itself, which is one to two months yep. and then fulfilling all your perks and everything after. Um, not to mention a cut of that is going to go to wherever it is, Seed and Spark or Kickstarter. Um, you may not raise the full amount, but let's say you do raise the full amount, $6,000. Um, really, even though it feels like your campaign's 30 days, really that's a six-month window potentially that you're investing. And then you have to ask yourself, could I raise $6,000 within half a year's time some other way? Like, could I just save you know, and I say just, you know, because saving $1,000 a month, uh, depending on how much you're you're making and you're spending and everything, that's not necessarily easy. But like, can, can you do that? Maybe some people can given their current work situation, or maybe somebody uh, saves $500 a month and, you know, sells an old camera that there uh, is kicking around collecting dust that they don't even want to use on their film. Like, there's so many ways to get $6,000 that um, require a lot less sweat equity than uh, Kickstarter or Seed and Spark. So um, again, not to deter anyone, but it's I had never really thought of it that way until I ran my own campaign. I was like, whoa, this is 
this is like a full-time job. I could literally work a full-time job and just get paid more money for my time. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, the nice thing is you get to build this community. Um, if you don't already have a platform like you might or like I might, it's a great way to connect to other filmmakers, um, especially on Seed and Spark, because they can follow you and you can essentially email them and update them. So pros and cons for sure. Yeah, it's for sure. And, and you know, out of our... Um out of our we ran two very two very successful kickstarter campaigns and out of each one of them we made contacts that further ended up furthering the film mm -hmm. so exactly. um, but it was yeah it was just and if you don't have um the other thing is if you don't have a team if you're the only one doing it you oh. gotta you have to double check that <laughs> you will have the time but not only the time the energy like yes. that's what's been a huge learning curve for me coming out of school and then going and doing shorts and a feature while also trying to pay the bills is like honestly looking at yourself and saying like yeah i may have the time but am i going to have the energy yes. come that time when i have that free time and it's so wise to think of it that way and i think to preemptively even build that into your process. I think part of the reason I felt a little uh, kind of burned out at the end of this process was we went almost right away into production. I think we had a month or something in between the campaign finishing and then shooting the movie. Um, so I was pretty tired. I mean, at the yeah. end, because I did, you know, I definitely had other people uh, assisting me, but a lot of the, you know, mechanical work and the tactical work of editing the videos and stuff came down to myself and and you know sharing it on my blog and all that stuff which i'm happy to do but again it, it was just a ton of work and then that's a, a big chunk of time leading up to the production of the feature that you're not spending on prep that you're not spending you know doing one more rewrite of the script or one more rehearsal and sometimes those things count so much so i think you know uh and thankfully, I didn't feel in this case that I, you know, I shot myself in the foot. But in another scenario, I don't think a month would have been enough time. Like I, I would build yourself in a good, you know, chunk, whatever it is that you need, depending on if it's a short or feature, maybe it's a few months, um, but enough time to kind of like catch your breath, get back on your feet and then uh, figure out what the next step is. And that's it. Let me I want to know your experience. But I, I think I feel like that is an advantage to these smaller budget films that I'm I'm busy doing. You're busy doing. And I've talked to a bunch of other filmmakers that are looking at, you know, that 10 to 20 under 50, you know, that type of thing where time is an advantage there, though. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah, you, you do. If you build it in and you don't rush yourself, it is. And that's a lesson that I learned was um, if I allowed myself two weeks mm -hmm. coming back to it, I got so much done quicker, sharper by yes. building that time into it. You're right. And I think just even in terms of the creative process, time is the one asset and like literally the one and only asset that independent micro budget filmmakers have that studio filmmakers don't have because they're on a deadline they have investors they have you know the studio to, to um report to and there's really strict deadlines and budgets and everything and with a, a independent film for better or for worse and in this case obviously for better because it, it can be advantageous but you can just kind of 
take as long as you need. And that can add uh, a lot of time to, you know, that could give you a lot of time to make your creative choices stronger and to make the film stronger because potentially you may be able to even add production value uh, by taking more time with production. Yeah. Um, I use this example often because it, it's such an easy one, but like looking at just the changing of seasons, like if you have a film that you can shoot slowly over the course of a year and you don't have to shoot it all in, you know, 20 days, back to back, right. then, you know, and maybe you live uh, not in LA, but somewhere where it is, you know, snowing or there's whatever, there's actual seasons. Yeah. And then you can capture um, this really amazing kind of visual palette that you literally couldn't buy with money. Uh, you just need time. So uh, I, I love that you brought that up because um, I, I think that's a kind of an undervalued and untapped resource for micro budget filmmakers, because we're all so eager just to you finish it and, you know, show it to people and get on to the next one. So, Noam, um, can you get into the budget and give us a number? Because I think a lot of people listening would be very interested to know where your budget falls. Totally. So on um, Seed and Spark, we raised uh, over half of our budget. We raised, um, I believe, around thirteen, fourteen thousand dollars $14,000. But our total budget for the whole feature was... Uh, roughly, and this is including post-production festivals and everything, probably $25,000, $26,000, like yeah. super, super low, super micro budget. Um, and uh, that was largely only possible, I would say, because, well, a lot of reasons. But I guess top of mind right now is post-production because we were fortunate to partner up with uh, my composer, who's uh, essentially now an investor on the project. Mm -hmm. um, so that helped save us some money. Um, I was able to call in a favor for um, post audio with uh, Allied Post, Woody Woodhall, who is uh, an amazing kind of post veteran. Uh, and then I did all the color work myself. I did the editing myself. So you know, had it not been for some of those savings and post, we probably would have been at least double that budget. Um, yeah. But essentially, we spent almost everything just on production, just renting houses, these two houses, um, cast and crew uh, for nine days. And that was that. Wow. Nine days. That's yeah. really, really quick. Oh, my <laughs> it was, God. It was that, insane. Yeah, That gives me a panic attack just hearing about it. <laughs> I know. Well, and now I wish that... I knew, you know, it's hindsight's always 2020, but I'm looking at the edit now and there's all these great scenes that, and it happens with every movie that just don't fit in the end because yeah. you realize in the edit, the way all the pieces came together, you just don't need it. And it's almost stronger without that scene. Um, but like, I, I only wish I could have known the scenes that we were going to lose where we spent, you know, three quarters of a day on the yep. scene that just gets literally flushed down my trash bin on my computer um and uh and then the, the the hour that we had to spend on the scene at the end of the day that ends up being like a pivotal moment in the edit um it, it was crazy but one thing is sort of on a going on a tangent but something that i i learned from this film was that you know, my favorite scene and my favorite sync sequence in the entire movie was filmed, I think, the second last day. And we had virtually no time left. We were way behind. In some cases, I think we only got like one take of certain angles or certain yeah. shots. But that was like, I think objectively, when people watch the movie, if they like any part of it, it's going to be that sequence in those few scenes. And 
like I said, if I've learned anything, it's almost that the time you spend on it doesn't always necessarily equate to quality. I, it can, right. but it's, 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 you know, sometimes it's your instinct on set and the preparation before that is, is going to matter. And sometimes it's just do, does everything line up the right way? Do all the chips right. kind of fall in the right place? Cause there is an element of luck at the end of the day when, when you're filmmaking, especially with nine day shooting schedule. Yeah, it's very, yeah, hindsight. I think um, what hurts so much going through editing is how much hindsight is 2020. Yes. Sometimes oh. like you're just like, what was I thinking? Yeah. Oh, I've had so <laughs> many know. of those moments. Even just, yeah, like parts, like scenes where there are things that I wanted to cut out of the script. I'm like, oh, I'll leave them in. And then those are, again, like some of my favorite parts. And then the things that I was so sure of early on. And uh, now I can't, you know, there's no chance it'll make it in the cut. It's, it's right. just, it's amazing how different you see the film at every stage. And uh, I, I think, you know, that's a skill unto itself is to kind of learn how to navigate that. And something that I always certainly wrestle with over, you know, I have over the years. Well, can I ask you what you, you kind of got into a big lesson, but what would you say, I guess, um, the biggest lesson you learned for yourself as a director, as a creative, as a filmmaker, what do you think you learned on this shoot? I think this what film? I learned, that's a good question. I think once this film is actually done and it's out in the world and people are watching it and giving me feedback, I think I'll be able to answer that question better. But I'll say that it's reinforced just a more general lesson that I've been learning over time and that I want to um, more... Uh, I guess, more purposefully sort of integrate into my creative process, which is just um, letting like sort of like leaning into your own sensibilities and your own unique uh, perspective, as opposed to just doing the thing because um, that's what you think you should do or because you think someone else should do. And um, there's a fine line because people will always give you the advice, you know, make your film personal. But at the right. same time, if you make it too personal, you don't have an audience anymore. So it's right. like finding that balance, I think is the key to almost every amazing film, almost every genre. Uh, it doesn't matter if, you know, sci-fi or if it's a drama, but if you feel that the director truly had a personal vested interest in that project, that really, really comes through. And when that hasn't been kind of taken over the line where it's self-indulgent, Right. And it's truly still entertaining and connects to maybe a bigger theme or a bigger audience. Um, that is, I think that's the goal. And that's something that I've been sort of learning over the years and, and trying to be more purposeful with, I guess, moving ahead. So is this, um, this micro budget world that we're talking about, um, and it's definitely one of the reasons like I wanted to have you on. Um, and I've said that to a couple of the past guests too, is um is that a world that you're looking to continue through for the next two, you know one or two or three next films as well potentially yeah i think um i mean my philosophy is always what's the idea that i have and what do i need to get it done that always comes first and foremost and i'm i'm kind of you know, more than kind of uh, a minimalist, I guess, when it comes to business or just the practicalities of kind of putting together production. So for me, if I believe that there's a version of the film that I want to make that I could do 
right now with, you know, $10,000 and a few friends, um, then I want to make that movie, even if I have access to a million dollar investment, because if I don't need that money, I don't want to take it and then be on the hook to pay someone back and make choices that, you know, aren't in line with the creative vision. At the same time, I don't want to limit myself from bigger opportunities. So I don't know, I haven't thought that far down the road, but I have thought that um, I want to uh, definitely make at least one more micro budget feature and probably I'll make more. Uh, right. I think even if I start, there's a couple of investors I've been speaking to over the last year or so about a larger scale project. But even if that one goes, I could see myself doing something bigger and then coming back to this because it's just, uh, I don't know, I just, I have so much fun with it that I don't know that I would ever, you know, have the same kind of room to play uh, with more stakeholders and more money and more cooks in the kitchen. So just trying to enjoy it, I guess, while I can and, you know, take it one movie at a time at this point. Totally. Is, um, is studio films and like TV directing, is that something you're trying to pursue as a director as well? Um, no, I don't think either really. I think, um, definitely not TV directing, although I thought of it in the past because especially being in LA where there's so much TV work and, you know, you can make a pretty good living doing that. But I, I I guess just for me, because I, I'm also very into business and I have a couple of businesses myself and just the time commitment, it's, you know, I love independent filmmaking because, uh, it's like your own business. It's like your little company, you start it, you do it on your terms, even studio filmmaking. I mean, if studios, uh, eventually get to a place, you know, where they were in, in, you know, the nineties or whatever, when we saw them like really supporting, like, you know, the, 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 uh, the film everyone always uses as an example is like Shawshank Redemption, like that movie would never get made today. So like, you know, if, if that's what studios were, of course, you know, I would certainly aspire to, um, to work on that level. But, you know, and again, it's, this isn't a knock against any of the movies coming out now, but I, I've just never been really a comic book guy. I never grew up on superheroes and, and I've seen a few of the movies and, and they're great, but they're just not my, they're just not what I, I think I could do best or what I'm even interested in. Um, not that anyone's banging on my door to direct a Marvel movie. Um, right. but if they were, I can honestly tell you, um, like I said, it's for me, it's not about the scale. It's just about like, is it a story I'm actually interested in? And and most of the stories, sadly, that a lot of the studios are putting out right now. Um, uh, and I'm not specifically just talking about like the comic book stuff, but uh, a lot of the other uh, kind of big tentpole movies aren't aren't uh, super appealing to me, I guess. Right. But, you know, but yeah, you know, I, I'm hoping that will change because I, I'm seeing, especially on the documentary front, there's yeah. a lot of independent documentaries that are getting theatrical releases now, and that never happened before. So, you know, there's uh, we'll see if that sort of trickles up and affects some of the the mentality on on the studio front, I guess, over time. To bring it back to micro budget, it, it's been interesting because this new iteration of the podcast, I've had a very specific um, kind of through line that I've been trying to pursue, which is I've just been hearing you've been hearing and uh, I've been talking to a lot of filmmakers that are doing these micro budget, just so very, very small films. Mm-hmm. And it has been um, and I'm that's a world I'm very interested in because there's a part of it where it's just I want to go just go off. It's like painting. 
almost. Yes. Yeah. It's like, I, I don't, it, it's not about, um, it's just about doing the art or doing the film for film's sake or having your little space out in the middle of a field, mm-hmm. you know, where you can run it how you want to run it. And yes. I it, like people talk about like vegan as a lifestyle. Mm-hmm. It is this kind of like micro budget as a lifestyle has become this new thing in the past, I don't know, seven years. It's And it's not independent film either. Like I've read more and more articles about like what was indie is not indie anymore. Yeah, you know? it's true. You know, you're so right. Everything has changed, even the terminology, because in indie film, uh, and I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure I just saw one of the films that was bought at Sundance this year had a budget of $85 million. And it's like, right. how is that in independent film like i get that it's not maybe technically produced by universal or whoever but it's it's really like is that in the spirit of of you know independent filmmaking and like i for me i always think of it in con- in the context of music because i grew up listening to a lot of independent artists and like you know, it just th- these bands that would sort of put out like records in a very DIY fashion. And right. I always thought like, to me, that's the most pure form of, of like a musical expression almost, or how people used to, you know, make probably old like blues albums or jazz albums. And, you know, how do you do that on the filmmaking level? Uh, that's always a question that's kind of going through my mind. And, and to your point, I think micro budget filmmaking is the best way to do that and to, almost like have the same sort of spontaneity, creative spontaneity um, that you might get if you're just jamming with buddies on your guitar yeah. or something, but instead you're jamming with your camera and you're in the wild and you couldn't do that even with um, independent films, let's say in the 90s when they were sort of at their peak mo- right. more recently. Um, even then, I mean, none of this existed. Like we're in a totally different like ecosystem now that kind of is it really is the wild west. I don't know if anyone's ever going to make any real money doing any of this stuff, but I also don't know if that's really the point because right. you can make a studio money and lose ton of money on it, you know, or or be a director for hire and make a couple of bucks and that's that. So at the end of the day, I, I think it comes down to a question of like, why why do you want to make films? You know, because everybody has a different reason. And I think if you understand the purpose behind it, then it's, you know, it's more clear, you can sort of more clearly define, um, I guess, which, which of these categories you fall into, even though everything is shifting every day. And it's, you know, it's a kind of a moving target, I guess. Yeah, it it definitely. And it's the pro what I've tried to use the podcast for is to crystallize and no film school has a lot of articles that have crystallized it over that micro budget lifestyle thought process over the course of the past certainly five years um Mm -hmm. which is you know that's how i got um that's how i heard about your film you know yep and that's um, awesome so can i ask you though when you make a film when or when you're thinking about micro budget films and everything what's what is it that draws you to it and sort of what's your goal as a feature filmmaker is it is it like first and foremost creative expression or is it to find fans or is it to make an a living with it or is it kind of a mix um it, it is a mix i definitely i look at um i've been i'm super interested in like pursuing television directing Mm-hmm. Um, cause I think that's a world, I love collaboration. 
Yeah. And television is, especially now, television now is just a world that I'm like, I would love to be one of seven directors that work on just a cool ass show. Totally. You know, I love that idea of like, hey, let's all get together and like make something awesome. That's um, great. Yeah. And I love like plugging into, I'm pretty good at plugging into a already existing or a team that's already there. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I don't need it to be like something that I generate. Yeah. Honestly, like I write just to have something to direct. But you like the actual in the moment being on set and the, the collaboration and and that's that's great because you see just knowing that for you in your case uh, leads you to be aware that yeah filming uh, sorry TV directing might be a great avenue to pursue because you don't have to write every single thing that you direct and you get to be on set more often and if yeah. that's kind of your comfort zone then. Um, then that's that's awesome. But when it comes to the micro budget side, is it is it just almost as a means to get to the TV side or to kind of create a body of work, or is it to sell it, sell the movie? Uh, it's product? totally well. Like the one I'm working on now was is just this grand experiment of, and there's so many questions that I just needed to answer for myself. And I had to go through the process, which was, can I handle one? Can I handle getting producing and directing a feature. Um, honestly, like the hand me down films team, it was kind of a test for everybody on the team because we're kind of dispersed. Yeah. So it was the first big question of like, Hey, can we still continue collaborating in a very meaningful way, even though we're all up in New York or DC or LA? Um, you know, yeah, some of it is, um, I have a big question about like, is it possible to, have a company that is cranking out even micro budget features in the DC area, because it's just not something that happens here yet. Yeah. Um, What's the filmmaking scene uh, there? Is there, are people interested in these kind of films? Uh, they're not being made. It sounds like as much, but are, would people go, is there, are there good film festivals out there and all the rest so of it? There's a lot. So there in the past five years, there actually are some pretty good mid-level film festivals that mm -hmm. do um, support the film filmmakers here. Yes. Um, they have to have, just for financial reasons, they have to have a large documentary focus mm -hmm. because that documentary is what gets produced here. News, documentary, corporate, and government video is what gets produced in the D.C. area. So, so I imagine not to take you on, uh, on, I'm just going into podcast mode now. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. I'm so curious and I'll save some of this for when, when you're on my show, but, um, I always hear about people, uh, uh, from that part of the country and especially in years like this, when it's an election year, just so many political ads too, yeah. right? That's a big, do you wind up on some of those kind of so jobs? I, I, I do work, um, on the editing side of those for yeah. sure. Um, I don't, um, I'm in a, I'm in a corporate setting for a lot of the stuff I shoot mainly. Mm -hmm. Um, but I do freelance edit a lot of those, um, and a lot of other corporate work and stuff like that. So, and, and basically, you know, an election year is when everybody makes buku bucks for yeah. in the video world out here. Everyone is just kind of prepped for, 
they make money one year and then they're waiting for four years down the line when they can make a shit ton of other money. And it's yeah. how do you how do you live? How do you make the money spread out between those four years? You know? Yeah, that's yeah. it's crazy. I, I always think of when I have worked uh, with teams in other cities or states remotely and on specifically on election years. And uh, it would be so hard. I remember one time I was trying to book a crew, I think in Iowa, and it was so hard to find people because everybody was on these political ads. So it was yes. just that like time of the cycle or whatever. And nobody was available. But yeah, that's why I was curious because you mentioned documentaries and a lot of yeah. these other sort of uh, more journalism style projects, I guess, that would have an obvious home in, in DC. But uh, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, all it takes, though, and I think you're a great example is like, it just takes somebody like you to like make the next slam dance or, you know, like slam dance or all these festivals, like they're just one or two people that just said like, hey, like, no, we're not being represented here. Let's go make our own thing. And I love what you're doing because you're, you know, and you expressed me this to me last time. I don't know if uh, we, we said it on the air this time around, but, um, you know, just you, what your mission is, is like really bringing this sort of voice to the DC area filmmakers yeah. that might not be local there, but that you want to, you want to bring that sort of mentality uh, to your hometown. And I think that's such an admirable thing that, that more people should do, you know, no matter where they're, they're living or operating. Well, I appreciate that for one. Um, and I thank you for, uh, I, this is the first time I've been kind of interviewed on my own podcast. So <laughs> it was fun. I, um, I can't help it. This is what happens when you get a, a, another podcast host. Two podcasts yeah, talking I'll, back I'll and forth. It. Yeah, exactly. When I talk to a lot of filmmakers in the area, what is a constant thing is, people, um, one, they doubt themselves because they're not connected to anybody in New York or LA. They're just mm -hmm. like, I'm just doing this thing. And they don't understand how actually you're good. Yeah. You're go and do it. That's the yeah. first thing you got to do. But then the second thing is, um, there are some lessons that, um, perfect example is like getting an agent. Mm -hmm. It is not something that people talk about in the DC area because everything is a contract between companies. Yep. So that whole like, you know, do you need one? Do you have one? You know, everything that we associate with L.A. or New York, it's just demystifying that for everybody down here that's trying to pursue it. Because there's a lot of mystif, uh, mystery around some yes. of these things that it's just like once you understand there is no mystery around it. Oh, I'll just go and do it myself or I'll just go move forward. I don't need it. Exactly. And I think you don't need to move across the country to, to realize that. And so many people, that is what happens. They, they feel like, Oh, I, I don't have the opportunity here and they don't see how they can create the opportunity for themselves. Right. So then they move to a bigger market, let's say LA or New York or wherever. And yes, there's certainly more filmmakers. There's in, in a sense, more opportunity, but um, it's also more competitive. And if you right. don't create your own opportunity at home, you're not going to be able to create it here, you know, and, and you can, there's I can't think of examples off the top of my head, but I'm sure dozens, probably hundreds, maybe thousands of examples of filmmakers who stayed in their hometown. They made a great film. I just spent actually this morning uh, sort of going through some of the short films, just reviewing some of the short films that uh, were programmed at Cannes last year, uh, just to kind of get a sense of what they were programming and see if any were online. 
And they're all so different. Like they're all from a different country in a different place in a different city. They all have a different perspective, a different voice. So like none of those films didn't get in because the filmmakers lived in the wrong place or right. they didn't have the right connection. Uh, they got in because they're extremely, extremely unique, personal, amazing films. And those films can be made anywhere. And those people can be in, you know, somewhere in the middle of nowhere in, you know, wherever in North Dakota, it doesn't matter right. where you are. Um, you could make a great film. It could get seen. You can get your LA agent and never have to leave your house, you know, right. if, if you don't want to. Um, so anyway, again, I, I think it's great what you're doing and sort of opening people's eyes. Cause I, I wish that I had learned some of those lessons, uh, earlier on, as opposed to just by trial and error. It's been, I had a very clear, like, um, real, like realization back a couple of years ago where it's like, well, if I don't, I don't have many connections, I can make more connections one by doing this podcast, but in the end, I only I have to do the work. That's kind of the only thing that I can do. So yes, that's what I need to do, you know, and that's um, like bringing it back to micro budget films. Like to me, that's the best thing about making micro budget, whether it's yeah. uh, short, whether it's a feature, it doesn't matter. Like you get better every time you write a script, every time you get on set, you make an edit, literally every, every film may not be received better than the last, but you as a filmmaker, I think grow more and especially from your failures too like yes. it's it's kind of the age-old advice but like you learn nothing from your successes you only learn from your failures and micro budget films afford you the luxury of just failing as much as you want or experimenting or trying things that maybe will work and will kind of shock and surprise people but if they don't work who cares? You don't owe somebody $10 million. There's not some actor who's yelling at you because you, you, you know, made them look bad and you, you know, right. you screwed up their career or something like you're just having fun. And, and, um, that is what, to me, that's the appeal of, of working on these smaller canvases is just, you know, experimentation and, and creative growth. Hey guys, just want to remind you that not only can you find the Full Frame Podcast on HMD's website, www.hmdfilms.com, but you can find us on Facebook, and most importantly, you can find us on iTunes, where we would really like if you could leave a review and subscribe. Thanks. Have a great week.